So as you think about your emotions, I think that we, we all have emotions and we go through seasons where we can be more emotional or less emotional. There are individuals who are more emotional or less emotional by temperament. But as you reflect on your own emotions, I wonder if you think of your emotions as a good thing or a bad thing. And maybe that depends on the day. There are days where you like your emotions and some days where you don't like your emotions. And even culturally, I think that people can sometimes view emotions as all bad or all good. On the all bad side, there are people who say that emotions cloud our judgment. It's the the opposite of rational, cool logic. And for that, you can think of Spock from Star Trek in the original series who uh, was the the person of logic who rejected all human emotion, who tried to be the, the rational one, and he always looked down on humans as these these irrational, emotional creatures. And so that's seen emotion as the opposite of rationality. But that's not where our culture is as a whole today. That today, we're more of the the Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars, who's saying, Luke, trust your feelings. That it's the idea that that feelings aren't just good, that, that feelings are actually ultimate that you want to know if something is true, look to your feelings. If you want to know if something is good, look to your feelings. If it feels good, do it. If you feel something is true, even subjectively, that that no one else can tell you different, no one else can disprove that, that your subjective internal feeling is ultimate according to our culture. And so we see the extreme then. Are emotions bad? Are they good? And then as believers, we wonder, what does the Bible say about emotions? Does the Bible have a a positive view or a negative view of emotions? And in, in the Bible, it's actually far more complex than that. Because the Bible teaches that that God created emotions, that emotions are part of what it is to be human. And emotions are therefore as part of God's design, something that we shouldn't shy away from, we shouldn't be ashamed of our emotions. But then we also recognize in a sinful world that emotions are broken just like we are as people, that, that our emotions can sometimes lead us astray. Our emotions can be evidence of something true going on within our heart and our life, but that doesn't mean that our emotions are always glorifying to God. And so we wonder then, what would a person look like who had emotions that were perfect? Emotions that were were always tuned to the right frequency. Emotions that that perfectly glorified God all of the time. And you say, well, that is what we see in Jesus Christ as we look at the picture of Jesus in the New Testament. That Jesus... In the gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, isn't presented as a Spock who's just emotionless and constantly focused on logic alone. And nor is Jesus somebody who is just driven by his emotions, who is a slave to his emotions. But rather, Jesus was a balanced person who expressed real human emotion because he was truly God and truly man in one person. 
and yet he was able to, to rule his emotions, that his emotions always reflected what was actually true to reality. And so that's why in this short series that we're going to do in December, we're looking at the emotions of Jesus and focusing on first the compassion of Jesus. That's where we're going to look at today. The compassion of Jesus from Matthew, the, the first biography of Jesus in the New Testament. And then next week, we're going to look at the anger of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, the second gospel in the New Testament, the second biography of Jesus. And yes, there is such a thing as sanctified godly anger, according to Scripture. Then the week after that, we're going to look at the sadness of Jesus. And again, there are times where sadness, sorrow, is the correct emotional response. And we see that from Jesus as well. And then finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the joy of Jesus, the, the deep joy that he felt and expressed in his ministry. And really, the, the goal of this series is twofold. That the, the first goal is to help us all appreciate what we're celebrating in this season of Christmas. Because the great theme of this season is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Jesus taking on himself a true human nature. And so we see that in his real human emotions. And so we can rejoice, we can revel in the true humanity as we look at his emotional life. But then the second goal of this series is to help each one of us wrestle with our own emotional life. That we all have emotional ups and downs. We all face times where our emotions take control of us. So how do we deal with our emotional life. And in particular, Christmas is an emotional time of year because there's the joy, or at least the joy we think we should be expressing. There's the sorrow of loved ones who have been lost, of regrets. There can be the anger and the frustration even at the commercialism or uh, the, the lack of awareness of what the season is actually about. So we have this, this range of emotions so how do we deal with them in a godly way? That we look first and foremost at the emotions of Jesus, the only perfect human who ever lived. And so let's start then with the compassion of Jesus today. So turning your Bible with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verse 35 to the end of the chapter, verse 35 through 38. And this is printed in your bulletin as well. If you need it, we have pew Bibles out on the table if you need to grab one of those Bibles. But you remember that, that Matthew was originally a tax collector, one of the most hated members of society. And he left everything behind, left the tax booth to follow Jesus. And then as he wrote this gospel after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he was focused on the, the major theme of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. And in this context, in particular in chapter 9, uh, Jesus is still ministering near his hometown. He's in the region of Galilee. And he had healed a, uh, two blind men. He, held, he healed someone who was unable to speak. And then here he begins to, to deal with the crowd. So again, this is Matthew chapter 9, and then I'll begin reading in verse 35. 
Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we we pray that you would sanctify our emotions today. And as we look at the compassion of Jesus, we ask that that you would be compassionate on us, that you would help us understand your word, apply it. Father, we pray that we can not only see and understand your compassion intellectually, but that we can actually feel it and know it on a deep experiential level. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can see in your Bible in, in verse 36 where it says that, that he had compassion. This word compassion that that could be translated as pity, or it could be translated as having sympathy for the crowds. And there's a a great book, actually, on the emotional life of Jesus called The Emotional Life of Our Lord by one of the the greatest theologians in the 20th century, B.B. Warfield. And in his, his section on compassion, listen to what he says. He says, this is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to Jesus. The term employed to express it was unknown to the Greek classics and was perhaps a coinage of the Jewish dispersion. And so what Warfield is saying is that when you read the Greek classics before the New Testament, when you look at Greek literature, you don't see this word compassion very often, if at all. Because they weren't concerned about the value of compassion culturally for the most part. When they were thinking about their leaders, their kings, their generals, their gods, it was strength, it was power that mattered. It wasn't this this deep compassion for people. But that's exactly what we see from Jesus. And today we're going to notice three dimensions of Christ's compassion from this text. And so first, notice the object of Christ's compassion. The object of Christ's compassion. Look at verse 36 again in your Bible. He says, it says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. So you say, on whom did Christ have compassion? that it was the sight of the crowds that were gathering to hear him preach and teach that that moved Jesus to compassion. And we see this later when Jesus feeds the crowd, that he sees the crowd gathering and he sees their hunger. He doesn't want to send them away hunger. Uh, This is a, a common theme, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, that he's moved to compassion by the crowds. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if compassion is the feeling I have when I see crowds generally in my life. 
Uh, I, I grew up originally in a mining town in Colorado. The, the mine closed in 1992. So before 1992, the, the biggest industry was gold mining. But then after the mine closed, the, the biggest industry was tourism because there was a steam train that went from Durango up to Silverton. And so pretty much everyone in the town in some way was involved with the, the, tourist, the tourism industry. And uh, it was my dad ran the art gallery in the town. Uh, you, would be, you would talk to other people who ran stores or shops or restaurants. And there was basically a universal opinion among Silvertonians that tourists are terrible and awful. Uh, and no one in Silverton liked tourists. Uh, you always would hear stories about how silly tourists were, the dumb questions they asked, how, I mean, it's a, it's a real town, it has an old west feel, but people would wander around like it was just a, a theme park, they would stand in the middle of the street to take pictures, uh, and they could be very unkind, they're, immediately they're just like sheep when they get off the train wandering to look for food, uh, they don't know where they're going, and so no one liked the tourists. And... But then I had this experience after we moved and I would travel other places where it would suddenly dawn on me that I am actually the tourist. <laughs> uh, that, that I would be wandering around aimlessly looking for food. I would be the one asking dumb questions. And then it was just this terrifying thought. And then you, you go to a tourist town and you think, everyone here sees me as just a necessary evil. Uh, no one here likes me unless I buy something. And, and so that's the way that we tend to view crowds, whether it's crowds at the grocery store, or crowds at Longwood Gardens, wherever we are. We don't like the crowds. We look down on the crowd. But as we think about it spiritually, that, that we also like to look down on the crowd of humanity. We look down on people and say, look at how those crowds have terrible ideas, or they do terrible things, or they have terrible views about the world. But then we have this moment of awareness where we say, wait a second, I am part of the crowd. I am part of the crowd of sinful humanity walking away from God. I'm part of the crowd that is confused and has terrible ideas. And so you think, well, then how would Jesus respond to, to me, to you? How does Jesus respond to the, the crowd of humanity wandering around aimlessly like tourists who are mean and who don't have anything good to say. That, that Jesus, when he sees the crowd, he is moved with deep compassion. And that's such good news for all of us. And, and I think especially as we, as we reflect on his compassion for us as individuals, that he's not ashamed of us, he's not spreading bad stories about us, that, that Jesus is moved with compassion. So we can rejoice in that compassion, we can meditate on that compassion, we can reflect on that compassion, or we can rejoice on it on so many levels. And then as we start to know and experience the compassion of Jesus ourselves, then we can turn and begin to extend that compassion to others, to to try to view the crowd of people created in the image of God more like Jesus views them with this deep feeling of compassion. So again, that's the object of Christ's compassion here in our text. But look at something else. Look, look next at the reason for Christ's compassion. The reason for Christ's compassion. Look at verse 
36 again in your Bible, says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. You say, well, why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So you see that this image of the crowd as sheep, which is true. When you see a large crowd, they, they, they've sent, they tend to look a lot like sheep. Uh, that, that we know even that crowds are not very smart. Maybe the individuals are smart, but the crowd itself a lot of times doesn't seem very smart. Uh, the crowd can be helpless, and, and, and it uses this imagery of wild beasts that are trying to destroy the sheep, trying to scatter the sheep. It reminds us actually of a, an image in the Old Testament. So if you turn in your Bible to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, this is a, a chapter in the Old Testament of both anger and compassion, where, where God is angry at the leaders of Israel because they were called to be shepherds of the people, to care for the people, to, to lead the people, to teach the people, to have compassion on the people. But instead, they were terrible shepherds who ate the sheep, who abandoned the sheep. And so listen to what God says to these terrible shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel 34, verse 4. He says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. And then, of course, as this chapter continues... God announces that he will come then as the shepherd. I myself will search for the sheep, says God. And of course, we know that he comes then as the good shepherd in the person of Christ. But there you see this image of the people as the sheep. And, and there's this sense of anger. And we'll talk next week about the anger of Jesus, which was most often directed towards the leaders of the people. And Jesus sees how their leaders had abandoned them, their leaders hadn't taught them, uh, and therefore the, the confusion, the wrong ideas of the people uh, is, is something that, that really happened to them. It's not that they're not morally responsible. And that's what Jesus is seeing in this text, that they are harassed. Uh, they are, there are people who are, are like sheep, they're wandering, they don't know what they're, they're doing and so this moves Jesus to this deep feeling of compassion because of their situation. But again, I think that, that our reaction to the crowd can be very different. That we see a lot of confusion in our world today. We see confusion about authority. Where is true authority found? We see confusion about the, the origin of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life, the dignity of life. We see confusion about the meaning of marriage, about the, the role of sexuality. We see confusion about, about so many things in our culture. And so when we see all of the, the confusion, 
all of the ridiculous things that are posted on social media, all of the crazy TikTok videos, we, we start to feel maybe anger, maybe frustration, maybe superiority, or maybe even, and maybe in a most dangerous way, we feel this disgust for the crowds and for their confusion. And I, I heard a while back a, a, a talk from a psychologist who talked about how Adolf Hitler would weaponize emotions, that, that he was a very emotional leader, and that one of the, the emotions that he weaponized was the emotion of disgust toward his enemies. And the way that he talked about the Jews wasn't in the way that they were just wrong or that their ideas needed to be opposed, but it was pointed out that he would use imagery that would call for disgust, to push something away of something that's, that's dirty or cockroach or, or rat or vermin or filth. Uh, this, this sense that, that you, you don't have compassion on a cockroach. You don't have compassion on a rat. And so that, when you, when you start to have that kind of an attitude toward other people, when you start to look at them with disgust, well, that's when you dehumanize them. That's when you can start this, this pathway to even genocide, where, where people see other people as, as not people of dignity created in the image of God, but they see people as a problem to be stomped out. People is a problem to be opposed. People is, is something that we just don't like. And I think that this is something that is very common even in our own hearts. That I think when we look at the, the confusion of our cultural moment, that we can feel that the disgust start to come up within us. That we don't have the response of Christ. We don't respond in the way that he did. But thankfully... Jesus responds in compassion. And so when Jesus looks at the world, when he sees people who are confused about the origin of life or the meaning of life or the purpose of life or the dignity of life, that he's moved with compassion. Or when Jesus sees people who are confused about marriage or sexuality, he's moved with compassion. And so for us, then we, we reflect on our lives, and that means that he has compassion on you, and he has compassion on me. That it's not the response of disgust, even towards us, even as sinful people who so often rebel against God. And that doesn't mean that he approves of our sin. It doesn't mean that God isn't angry at sin or that God isn't the God of wrath. But we know that in Christ, that Jesus is moved with compassion Toward people. And so we can pray that we can experience that compassion of Jesus toward us. And then if we have experienced that compassion, then when, when we see other people who seem ridiculous, who seem mistaken, who seem confused, who seem like they don't know what's going on, that we can pray for the response of Jesus to respond with love, to respond with compassion, to respond with gentleness to the crowd. So that is then the, the second observation from this text. We're looking at the, the reason for Christ's compassion. But now let's look third and finally at the response to Christ's compassion. So we've, we've looked at the object of his compassion, 
the reason for his compassion. Now we'll look at the response to his compassion. So look in your Bible back to Matthew chapter 9 and look at verse 37. It says, Then, after he had compassion on the crowd, he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so, what we see here from from Jesus is the proper response to this emotion of compassion. And so what he's saying, he's moved with compassion, and then what he does is he calls people to see the world as a mission field, to see the, the, the world as as a world full of wandering sheep who need to be brought back to the fold. And he says that there are so many people, the harvest is plentiful, there are people that are ready to respond to the truth, who are confused, who are harassed, people who are helpless and they need to hear the good news of the gospel. He says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There aren't enough people who are willing to tell others about Jesus. There aren't enough people who are willing to share the gospel. There aren't enough people who are willing to go as missionaries or to be part of a church plant trying to reach communities. That that we look at this, this sense of missions, and he says that the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. So there's this sense of emotion that we're praying with this emotion, this earnest prayer to the Lord of the harvest. And we're praying that he would raise up people to go out into the harvest. And I think that when we reflect on, on missions and we ask ourselves the question of, do we support missions? Probably most of you intellectually support missions. You see that you believe that it's a good thing for people to do. But do we pray for missions around the world? Do we support missionaries financially? Do we ever even consider or ask God, God, do you ever want me to go? Would you ever call me to pursue missions overseas? Or, or even closer to home, what is our heart for lost people in Garnet Valley and Chad's Ford? Are we annoyed by the crowds at Wegmans? Are we annoyed by our neighbors? Do we, do we want nothing to do with the people around us? Is that the response that we have? Or do we have a, a missions mindset saying, yes, there's confusion. Yes, people can be annoying at times, but yet this is, these are people that are created in the image of God. These are people with dignity. These are people who so often have been led astray by all kinds of false ideas in the culture, and so they need this work of missions. And so you say, well, then how do you get that heart for missions? How do you feel enough compassion for people that you actually want to engage in the work of evangelism and sharing your faith? Because I think often the reason we don't care about missions and the reason we don't do evangelism is actually because of an emotional problem. That we, we know intellectually that people are, are helpless and harassed apart from Christ spiritually. But then we don't really feel anything. We don't feel any compassion. We don't feel a desire for people to know Jesus or to experience his love and if we don't feel that compassion, then it's very hard to motivate missions and care for our neighbors and our friends and our family. So then you say, how do I motivate myself? How do I get the emotion of compassion? 
And so this is where we can think of two words, the word prayer and the word practice. And so if you find yourself lacking in the emotion of compassion, that the first response is to pray, and to pray that you can, first of all, experience the compassion of Jesus Christ, that you would see his compassion extended to you, that you would see your sin nailed to the cross, that you would see your sin buried in the tomb, that you would see the love and compassion that Jesus extends to you, and that you would, you would not only know that intellectually, but you would feel it on a deep level, uh, and that, that that experience of the compassion of Jesus would then drive you to extend it to others. So that's the second thing to pray, is not only, Lord, sh- show me your compassion towards me, but then help me to show your compassion, Lord, toward others. How do you show compassion to people in the church? How do you show compassion to your friends, your family, your neighbors? And this is where I think it's especially important to cultivate compassion toward real people whom you actually know and whom you actually meet in day-to-day life. Uh, There's a a great part in the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, and if if you've never read that, I would encourage you to. uh, It has the the wit and the the good writing of C.S. Lewis, if you know his Chronicles of Narnia, but he's really looking at spiritual warfare from the opposite perspective. So it's about a, a demon named Screwtape who is writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, to advise him on the best way to deceive people. And so Screwtape advises his nephew like this. He says, The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference, to the people he doesn't know. The malice thus becomes wholly real, and the benevolence largely imaginary. And I think that this is true, that that at Christmas, people talk about goodwill towards man, that we talk about this this feeling of love and benevolence, uh, but then we're rude to people at the grocery store. Uh, We are unkind to our neighbors and our friends. And so we feel like good people because we love humanity, but we don't actually love real humans that we meet on a day-to-day basis. We just love the idea of humanity in a way. But what this is saying is that, that as we start to practice compassion, that we begin actually where it's hard with the people who are near us, because those are the people that are hard to love. Compassion for your wife, compassion for your children, compassion for your friends, compassion for your coworkers, compassion for everyone that, that you meet on the street, compassion for people in lines, compassion on the day-to-day basis. And, and as we start to, to actually put the rubber to the highway in day-to-day compassion, that's where, where we have to pray because we don't have the ability to well this compassion up in ourselves, that we can only feel compassion towards people as a gift of God's grace, as we experience his compassion, as we know the compassion of Jesus and say, Lord, please work that in me by your grace to see the compassion of Jesus and then to extend it to others created in the image of God. So may we all know that compassion today. Let's pray.